Well, I want to start off today with a riddle. Uh, we're talking about the proof of God's love this morning. And uh, this passage that we're going to be studying has probably one of the most famous verses ever uh, recorded, uh, most quoted, uh, and you'll know it very well when we get to it. But here's the riddle I want to leave you with today. Rich men want it. Wise men know it. The poor all need it. And kind men show it. Anybody could venture a guess to what that's talking about. Rich men want it. Wise men know it. The poor all need it. And kind men show it. The answer to the riddle is love. That is the answer to our life. That is the answer to the questions that many people have today regarding their eternity. And it's a question that God answers 100% through His Son, Jesus Christ. But would you agree with me today that we live in a world that claims love is the emotion and force that brings everybody together? All we need is a little bit of love and we'll be all right. Love for your country, love for one another, maybe even love for justice and etc. But if you don't pick up on it, they leave out one key ingredient. First and foremost, before we love our country, before we love our government, before we love our lives, before we love our spouses, before we love our children, the first and foremost person that we must love is God himself. But the world is not saying that. They're saying all we need is to love one another. But we're going to see today that that is incapable of being able to save us. Because first and foremost, we need to love God. And God established a pattern for our love from the beginning of the Ten Commandments. First and foremost, in Exodus 23, do you remember what he says? He says, do not have any other gods beside me. In other words, that altar in your life, that main thing, that, that center of your heart. Of course, like for myself, Donna is the center of my heart and my parents and the folks in the church. I mean, of course, I mean, all of you are in my heart. But at the core being, if I am not loving God with all of my heart, then the love that I'm sharing with everybody else is tainted and is inefficient. We must keep God first. And so if you and I were surveyed today and asked, do you believe that you love God with all your heart, your soul and your mind and your strength? I believe in our church and many churches today, uh, it would be 89, 90, 99% people would say absolutely. But uh, there may be even those folks that would say, how can I love a God that allows all the pain and suffering that we see in our world? Or how do I even know if God exists? Well, I'm telling you, my friend, that God's love can reach every person in every situation. Because we learned last week from Nicodemus that questioning God is not a crime. As a matter of fact, I would say that actually the questions that you have are the very things that are leading you to the Savior. If you don't have it all figured out, if, if you want to know more information, you're going to read his word. You're going to engage with other people that claim to be believers. But you folks, I want you to understand this. No matter where you are, whether you are a believer or a longtime believer, a new believer or not a believer at all, God is big enough for your questions. God is big enough for your concerns. And I think of, of Thomas, the one who said to Jesus, forgive me of my unbelief. Jesus has never chastised people that come to him wanting to know him and to have their questions answered. 
Last week we left Nicodemus trying to make sense of his rebellious, or not rebellious, but religious upbringing as a devout Jew. And to now a new way of worship that Jesus Christ was presenting towards him. He was a mystical figure. He was somebody that Nicodemus didn't understand. But he knew that he was different from any other man he would ever meet. So Nicodemus had questions about God's love. You have questions about God's love today. And our world that we live in right now is crying out for God's love. But the thing is, they don't even realize it. And so we're going to look at the proof of God's love. And and the key to understanding God's love is found in John 9 through 13. So so before I read that, I want to tell you a a little story. Uh, We have in our office, over in the church office, we have a big blue metal box, and it's filled with keys. Anybody got a drawer filled with keys? You don't know what they go to. You don't know where, you know, you have no idea. And so I remember one day I was trying to get into a, a door around here and I thought, well, you know, I need a key. And so I asked Carol, who was up here in Sydney, do we have a key? And they said, yeah, it's in the box. And so my first time looking in the box, I'm like, okay, I'll go get it. So I opened the box and whoosh. Eight hours later, I'm still looking for the key. And so anyway, not literally eight hours, but it took a lot of trial and error. I would get a key and I would, I would measure, I would look at it, look at the little notches, and I would try my best to say, well, this looks like that kind of lock. And I can't remember how many trips I made. I remember one time that, that the key would actually, and this is a frustrating thing, you got a key that goes in the lock, but it won't turn? Oh, man. I'm telling you what, maybe I'm just not turning it hard enough. I almost either broke my wrist or the key. I can't remember which one. But anyway, it didn't work. But finally, I found the right key. And uh, I'm so grateful that, that Cindy and Harold had have gone through that box and now everything's labeled. And so we're good now. The key box is organized until somebody shakes it up or, or moves it. I don't know. But anyway, the keys are good. But it doesn't matter how hard I tried with the wrong key. It wasn't going to open that door. I thought about kicking the door down. I thought, surely if I kick it down, I can fix it and no one will ever know, right? But, no, I had to find the right key for the right lock. Folks, I'm telling you, in your life, you might try to find everything under the sun to give you meaning in life. You might try everything in the world to experience love and to find love. But the true key to understanding God's love for your life is through Jesus Christ. And you can try many other ways to find that, but it will never unlock the door to your heart, to true love, and to eternal life. So let's read about that key here in verses 9 through 13 of chapter 3. How can these things be? asked Nicodemus. So Jesus responds, Are you a teacher of Israel and don't know these things? Jesus replied, I assure you, we speak what we know and we testify to what we have seen. But you do not accept our testimony. Verse 12. If I have told you about things that happen on earth, you don't believe. How will you believe if if I tell you about things in heaven? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended 
from heaven. So as we look at these verses, we see as kind of a repeat from last week that knowledge about Christ is not the same thing as knowing Christ. Nicodemus knew about Christ. He knew the works that he was doing. But when he asked, what does someone need for eternal life? Jesus responded last week in the scriptures. He said, a man must be born again. Nicodemus, that was so smart, he didn't understand it. And so he knew that Jesus was doing a work. He knew the things that he could see and he heard about. But yet, he still didn't have full understanding. Jesus here is messing with Nicodemus. He's saying... Pretty much, you say, Nicodemus, as smart as you are, and as much schooling as you've had, and the prominence that you have, and the political power that you have, you mean to tell me you cannot see what's right in front of your nose? He was saying, aren't you the one that's supposed to have all the answers? Now, I know that there are times where, believe it or not, and it's hard to admit it, I've been wrong before. I know some of you haven't. But I have been wrong before in my life. And Jesus is basically giving Nicodemus the look and saying, boy, you don't understand. But i got patience with you, and I'm going to let you learn. Nicodemus learned that day that he did not have all the answers. I have learned that I am not perfect. I do not have all the answers. And I'm sure if you were honest, you would say, you know, there are times when I've been wrong too. Maybe once, maybe twice, but at least sometime in your life. But... He's, Jesus is telling him, with all your education and all your religion, there's still something that you don't understand. The key to knowing God's love is first admitting that you don't understand everything. That you can't answer every question. That every T cannot be crossed. That every I cannot be dotted. That you are not going to be able to understand everything about God because God is unfathomable. His ways are higher than our ways. We cannot understand how He works. We cannot understand why He works. But we have to keep the key that we know He works. Why? Because He loves us. In verse 11 we see knowledge gives us an understanding of Jesus, but knowledge alone does not offer salvation. The biggest struggle that the world has with Jesus is the authority that he claims. The biggest problem people have with Jesus today, and the reason they don't want him in our schools, they don't want him in our uh, government buildings, they don't want him in our public squares, is because he challenges the authority of the worldly and the powerful. And he's challenging Nicodemus' authority. And this is the whole reason that the Jewish leaders wanted to crucify Jesus because he had the gall to say that he had more authority in relation to God than they did. I remember back in college when Don and I went to a school trip in uh, New York City. I guess that's where we fell in love with each other. Everybody say, oh, okay. Well, it was before that, but anyway, we, we love going to New York City, and that might have a little bit to do with it. Uh, but I remember that, that we were a bunch of college kids, and, and if you're college kids and, and from a Christian school, there's not but so much trouble you can get into, right? Hopefully. But uh, so we're all walking around New York, and we have to go to this place that had just come out. It was called the Hard Rock Cafe. Oh, man, there was all kinds of uh, musician memorabilia and all that stuff. So so we figured out and we got the maps before GPSs. Can you imagine that? We didn't have phones telling us where to go. We had to actually pull out maps and ask people. 
And we liked it that way. Uh, but anyway, <laughs> that was a long time ago. But I remember going up and I'm like, man, this is the place I've heard about. And at the time, I don't even know if they still had this there. But at the, over the door, there was the back end of a 57 Chevy. Just the wheel back. And so it looked like the car had driven right into the place. And on the license plate, anybody know what it says? It said, God is my co-pilot. You've probably seen that bumper sticker. You know? But i got news for you. Nicodemus and all the religious leaders and people even today think that God is their co-pilot. That, that there's some kind of committee you and Jesus are on. That he, uh, he is your advisor. Folks, it doesn't work that way. God is not your co-pilot. God is your pilot. We have to give them the authority. The greatest freeing act in your life would be to proverbially give Jesus the wheel of your life. And I know it sounds cheesy like the song, but Jesus take the wheel. Give Him authority in your life. And the only way you give anything or anyone authority in your life is because you love them. Love is the key. Nicodemus, we see in verse 13, you could not begin to know all that I know, and you have not been where I have been. That's what he was telling him. The one and only one who can speak about heaven is Jesus himself. Now, now check this out. We've all heard about uh, the, the movies, the books, Heaven is for Real, and we've heard about after-death experiences and stuff like this. But I'm telling you what, folks. Don't believe all of that because in the Bible, we just read this verse. What does it say? No one, no one has been to heaven except me. Now, it changes after his death, and we'll talk about that in a second. But the only one who can speak about heaven is the one who has been there. That's like some of you could, could uh, you know, could we could talk about New York City and what it's like. But unless you've been there, you don't know. And there are things that many of you in here are far wiser than I am. And I can sit down with you and I realize how much I don't know. Because I haven't been there. I haven't been through the things that you've been through. But we see that Jesus is telling Nicodemus you can't understand eternal things because you haven't been there. But I have. And at the time Jesus shared this, we had a... What do you do with the accounts in the Old Testament of like Elijah and Enoch who went to heaven? Well, in the Old Testament... When one of God's servants died, they went to a place called paradise. Paradise. And then we even see that mentioned with the thief on the cross in the Gospel of Luke, where the thief says, Lord, remember me when you come into my kingdom. And well, what does he say to him? Forever you will be with me in paradise. And this is the way I tried to explain it. Is that we go to, anybody been to the doctor before? Yeah, we've all been to the doctor. You've got the waiting room. Then you've got, they put you in the room, and then the doctor finally comes in. The best way to explain paradise would be, is that's a waiting room you can't get out of. Is that you are in heaven. You are, you are in the care of God, but, but you are in paradise. And this is where the saints of God were. Because there was no atonement for their sins until Jesus Christ died for their sins. So at the moment Jesus is on the cross, paradise opens up and everybody is ushered into heaven. 
And now thankfully today we don't have to stay in paradise because of the work that Christ has done on the cross. We can be, as Paul says, to be absent in the body is to be present with the Lord. I thank God that my last breath here marks my next breath in heaven. And that's the assurance that I have, not because I'm a preacher, but because one day as a teenager, I said, my life is not enough. I've screwed my life up enough and I I have loving parents. I have loving friends, but it's not cutting the mustard and I need something more. And that's when I found God's love. And we see that that Jesus here himself is explaining to Nicodemus and anyone who would try to figure out God and have the gall to say, that they know to, for someone to say that there is no God would mean that they would have to have the same knowledge that God had to make that argument. You see what I'm saying here? I mean, I can say that that uh, it takes. Um, I don't know. Think of something, something you're an expert in and somebody comes up and tells you differently. Like I, I could talk to one of my. My members here that's big in the golf, and I can tell them what they need to do when they get up to the tee. What you got to do is you got to hold your club like this, put 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 your back end out a little bit, and then swing through the ball. How how serious would you take that information? Because when when I try to golf, I look like a water buffalo trying to do ballet. It it is not pretty. But the thing is, is that those that have been there that know the game could give me some, some very good help because they've been there and they've done that. For someone to say that there is no God has no right to say that because they are not a God themselves. They are not the authority on whether there is a God or not. And you, you, my friend, that are a Christian, if you have friends that are arguing with you and saying, well, I know you go to church, but I don't believe in a God. They expect you to defend yourself. Why don't you try one time saying, oh, really? What gives you the right to say that? And they'll shut up. Because there is no right. You have no right. God's love is the key that opens up. Jesus is the key that opens up God's love. And then we see in our, our second point, God's love was shown to everyone. Everyone. Everyone means everyone. Verses 14 through 17. Let's read these. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. I'm sorry, did that say everyone? There are some people that would say that everyone is not everyone. It's only a few everyones. But no, everyone is everyone. And it says, here we go, verse 16, you know this one. For God loved the world. In this way, he gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world that he might condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Why did Jesus come to this earth in the way that he came, in the, for, in the, the humiliating form of a baby in a manger that was dependent upon human care and grow up to be the, the king of the Jews, but yet be crucified in such a horrible, demeaning way to be the resurrected king that is going to come back again. My friend, the reason Jesus came to this earth the first time was to save people, to love people. But the next time he returns, 
there will be condemnation and there will be justice served. But as we read this passage, you and I live in a dangerous world. Sin runs rampant. You see, I love in the Old Testament this encounter that Jesus brings up, that Moses went through with them lifting up the, the golden snake. What had happened was Israelites had been disobedient. And so God sent a plague of snakes to them. And then all of, the, all of them were bit. And you think, man, that's kind of, that's awful that they were bit. But yes, they were bit by venomous snakes. And then Moses lifted up a bronze snake. And anyone who looked up their eyes to that snake was saved. Does it take a rocket scientist to know what that was a premonition of? Folks, today in our world, we are all bitten by sin. We are all bitten. And I've got a few verses I want to show you. It says, Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It says in Romans 3.23, For all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. And for the person that will say, We don't need God, all we need is love. All we need to do is, is, is give our hearts to somebody. We don't need religion, we don't need God, we don't need all these other things. Look at what uh, Jeremiah says. He says, The heart is more deceitful than anything else, and incurable. Who can understand it? I've told you before, and I'll tell you again, the default setting for our hearts when it comes to our emotions, when it comes to our will, when it comes to what we want, will be ourselves. It will be sin, and it will be pleasing ourselves. We can, we can dress it up. You can put lipstick on a pig, but it's still a pig, right? You can dress up love to make it more than it is. But true love is not what's in our heart. True love is what Jesus has done for us. And I just said, put lipstick on a pig. Can you believe that? And then verse 16, we see in verses 17. If you look at verses 16 and verses 17, there's two words that blow me away. Number one, God sent and God loved. God sent and God loved. Let me tell you something theologically that you need to get straight. God's love did not save you. God's love did not save you. What did save you? God's grace saved you. And what I mean by that is that in Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, Paul says, For you are saved by grace through faith that is not from yourselves. It is a gift, not from works, so that anyone can boast. What I'm trying to say here is that love did not save you. It was God's grace that saved you. When he looked at you and said, you know what? This person is sinful and they have denied me just like Adam and Eve did in the garden. And they had that evil sin on them. But you know what? Because I love them, I'm going to give them grace. People are not saved by love, but love is the vehicle that delivers God's grace. God's love is not a static pond that... That thirsty people come to for a refreshing drink. God's love is acting and searching and available to anyone who would heed his call. So what does this verse say about love? God defines love in this way. The basis for all relationships, all love relationships, is proven in loving someone to the point of sacrificing yourself for them. There's the point on the screen. Think about that just for a second. I know it's warm in here, and I know you're thinking, boy, i got to get out of here, and i got to take that nap. But don't miss this. 
The basis for all love relationships is proven in loving someone to the point of sacrificing yourself. Okay, that sounds so high and churchy. Let's bring it down. Let's get real with it for just a minute. What this means is, have you ever heard someone say, you know what? They just don't make me happy anymore. You know what? I I just am not feeling it. They talk about a church. I'm not being fed. I'm not getting what I need. Marriages, relationships, governments, etc. would benefit from following Christ's examples. These things fail because they are always looking for their own self-interests. If you get married and you are in it for what you can get out of it, it will be a short marriage. If you are in a job for what you can get out of it and for a paycheck, you will be miserable the rest of your life. If you are in a church for what you can get out of it, you will never experience the true worship and the love that God has for you. Love is not about what we get. And I'd like to say that as a pastor, I was all, hey, I had this, I'm just telling you what you ought to know. Any time in my life when I tried to pull something in for myself and get what I needed out of it, I would ruin it. True love is sacrificing yourself for the other person. Because, folks, any time, any, you can take this to the bank, any time your love is focused on yourself rather than others, it ceases to be love. As soon as your love turns selfish, it ceases to be love. Let me show you this. As we look at John 3.16, you want to see how much God loves you? Go to John 3.16 and write your name in the blank where he's talking about everyone. So for me, it would be, for God loved James in this way, that he gave his one and only son, so that when James believes in him, James will not perish, but have everlasting life. Write your name in that verse, because, my friend, it was written in Jesus' blood. That verse is for you, today, tomorrow, and the rest of your life. God paid the highest price he could pay in the death of his son, Jesus Christ. And the thing is, Jesus willingly gave up his life to do so. He gave up his comfort. He gave up everything that he had. To go reach you. So folks, how in the world can we sit on our high horse and our lofty towers and our whitewashed walls while people are dying and going to hell? And we receive the benefit, but we refuse to give it to somebody else. We've got to share the gospel. We've got to be on mission. We need to quit having a one-dimensional view of eternal life. You see, eternal life is not a perpetual ending Cycle of what we live now. Because for some people, they would think, if I were to say, you will have eternal life, they would say, well, my life stinks now, so I don't want it for eternity. That's not what eternal life means. Eternal life means living the life God has designed you to live. Eternal life can be experienced today, and eternal life can be experienced in eternity as well. And the third point is, God's judgment is an act of love. God's judgment is an act of love. I can remember as a kid, there were plenty of times when I got disciplined. And yes, I think I even got spanked once or twice. Even as an only child, I know you think, you know, I was, I was a little only child, a little redheaded, cute little child, and I didn't get into any trouble, right? I was perfect, just like you. No, I got in trouble. I got my honey torn up. Can you say honey in the church? 
I got my backside torn up. But you know what? I learned not to do that again. And I was I was disciplined because I was disciplined because I was loved. Do we really fear eternal condemnation? Let's read verses 18 through 21 as we close out our time together today. Anyone. There again, there's that word. Anyone who believes in him is not condemned. But anyone who does not believe is already condemned because he has not believed in the name of the one and only son of God. Then this then is the judgment that light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who practices wicked things hates the light and avoids it so that his deeds may not be exposed. But anyone who lives by the truth comes to the light so that his works may be shown to be accomplished by God. Do we really believe and fear eternal condemnation? If we believed in that, if we believed in a place that churches don't want to talk about, it's that four-letter word, hell. If people didn't believe in hell, excuse me, let me rephrase that. If people believed in hell, I think a lot of people would live their lives a lot differently. We live like there is no eternal condemnation. We go to funerals and we expect everybody to be at the pearly gates waiting on us. But folks, if they have not accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord, if they have not been born again, you will not see them again. If people in this community have not come to know Jesus Christ, they will, they, you will not see them again. And we will be the ones that will say, I lived a block down from that church and no one ever told me about Him. There is going to be eternal condemnation. We are going to have to give an account for what we have done and what we have not done. But those who live in the dark, what Jesus is saying here, those who live in the dark like to stay in the dark. People refuse to trust Christ because of their moral and spiritual blindness. This also means that when you take a stand in a dark place, that's why people will throw stones at you. Because they would much rather drag you down to where they are than to have to admit that they are immoral and in need of a Savior. As I said earlier, Jesus can handle your doubts and questions. But understand this, Jesus will not tolerate anyone who defiantly says, I do not want your love. Anyone who says, I do not want to accept Jesus as my Savior, anyone who says, I do not want to be a Christian, Jesus will not tolerate that. That's called apostasy. That's called somebody denying the Spirit. And so understand this, your life today is an introduction to eternity. The decisions you make today and the way you live your life will determine not only your tomorrow, but your forever. There are some of the dumbest shows that are on TV right now. And they call them reality shows when in actually they're not as, as much real as anything. You want a reality TV show? Show somebody going down on the porch and just watching the cars go by. That would be a reality show. Or somebody stressing out about bills. Or somebody mad at somebody else. You know, all this reality stuff is crazy. But they got this show now. Well, there's a couple shows. I, was, I saw the commercials that were on. And so, like, who would sign up for this? You sign up and you immediately get married to someone you've never seen before. Huh? 
in the world would somebody sign up for that? Is that you're going to be on, they say, we're, we're going to put you on a reality show and we're going to let you marry, or we're going to put someone with you to be legally your husband and wife. First of all, they're making a mockery of the institution of marriage. Number two, they're making a mockery of what God has instilled from the very beginning of Adam and Eve. But, but that aside, that's not my point today. The point I'm trying to make is, is that, is that they put them together and then they roll the cameras, and that's where the fun begins. How can you marry someone you're not in love with? This is a train wreck waiting to happen, and I'm sure the audience watching it will gobble it up. You and I know that you cannot force love. Love is rooted in knowing the other person. Love depends on serving one another and placing the other's needs before yourself. This does not come natural to our sinful nature. This is why love must be grounded in a personal relationship with God. Why? Because He has proven His love for you and I and the world around us. God's judgment is an act of love, but also God's proof of love is found in the Son He Sent. If you ever forget that, go back and look at verses 16 and 17. God loved and God sent. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word today. We thank you that, Lord, we are living in a world that is snake bit with sin, Lord. And all we got to do is look up to you, the one who is lifted up. We'll give you all the glory for our lives, Lord. But there, if there's one person in here today that would say, I finally get it, that I'm in need of God's love, that I want to experience what it means to be born again, because I do not know if I were to die right now where I would spend eternity. I want this life that your word is talking about. I want this life that the preacher is talking about. I want to know what pure love feels like. My friend, it starts with a relationship with Jesus Christ. That means loving God more than yourself and more than your sin. That means confessing your sins before God and asking Him to forgive you and asking Him to make you a new person. Not refresh what you've done, but a total do-over. There might be someone in here today that needs a do-over. If you'd like to know Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, you can walk up front during this invitation, I will pray with you and we'll, we'll know beyond a shadow of a doubt. And I assure you that there will be a lot of people in here that will rejoice in that decision because they've come to the same point in their lives. Maybe, some, maybe someone would want to join this church. Maybe someone just has a prayer need or they want to come to the altar. Whatever the invitation may be, would you respond as God leads? For it's in your name we pray. Amen. Would you please stand?